Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Well, thank you very much, Raymond. Lovely to see you all here today. And uh, as I have said the other mornings, if you have your mobile phone with you, please remember to turn it on again when you're leaving. And uh, it's uh, so good. Actually, one of the blessings of this convention for me is to meet people that I haven't met for years. And they look the same, but I'm conscious that I have changed a lot. And uh, for example, last night I met two uh, lovely Christian friends from Lancaster that I haven't seen in many, many years, flown over for this convention. How's about that? From the little island to the east of Ireland. And uh, welcome to the mainland, uh, as we did to our American brother the other evening. Um, but it, it, it's one of the values of a convention, isn't it? Meeting Christian friends and people who have had an influence and an impact uh, on the lives of others and on our own lives too. It's also been lovely. Um, yesterday I met for the first time a couple of men who told me they'd served as policemen in the province. And, uh, you know, we cannot thank men like that enough. Many of whom literally led down their lives for us in this province during the years of the Troubles. And I think they have given us wonderful service. And certainly in the churches and parishes where I have served, um, and we were 15 years in Coleraine, we had many, many policemen in our parish and who attended church regularly. And I could see the cost on their wife and their children sometimes of what their husbands and dads were involved in. So thank you to all who have served in our community so faithfully and sacrificially. And I'm sure the policemen won't mind if I tell a story about a policeman. There was a Church of Ireland rector in a rural part of Northern Ireland, and one Sunday morning, he was up early as he usually was on a Sunday morning, about half six in the morning, and he was preparing or finishing off his sermon, and he looked out the rectory window, and he saw lying across the driveway up to the rectory a dead ass, donkey, whatever you want to call it. And he thought, oh my goodness, there is no way I could lift an animal that size out of the way. And I need to be down at the church for the eight o'clock service. What am I going to do? Half six on a Sunday morning. So he thought, I know. The local sergeant, the local policeman, he'll help out. He's always a good Samaritan. So he phoned the local sergeant about a quarter to seven on a Sunday morning. Not a particularly wise thing to do, but anyway, he did it. He said, Sergeant, I'm sorry to disturb you on a Sunday morning, but I wonder could you help me? I have a real problem. There's a dead ass lying across the driveway up to the rectory, and I need to get out to get to the first service. Could you ever come and give me a hand? And the sergeant was sufficiently wide awake to say to the rector, I thought it was your job to bury the dead. To which the rector responded, well, you're absolutely right. It is, of course, but I thought I would notify the relatives first. <laughs> now, brothers, just exercise forgiveness. <laughs> now, for those who haven't been here on other mornings this week, uh, the theme of our Bible readings is models of mission in the 21st century. 
And for the last two mornings, we have looked at two people who are virtually unknowns in the uh, New Testament. And yet people who I hope those of us who have been here are now convinced are models of mission for the 21st century. Epaphras and Archippus, both referred to in Colossians and in Philemon. And I thought it might be helpful uh, today and tomorrow to move from looking at an individual at our morning Bible readings to looking at a church. Because after all, it's not just individual followers of Christ who are called to be models of mission and Christ-like. Every community of faith is called to be a model of mission, a center of outreach. And I believe that one of the, if you like, classic examples of a mission-minded and mission-hearted church in the New Testament is this church that we find in Antioch, described to us in the Acts of the Apostles. And in just a moment, we look at that. But first, I want you to watch and enjoy a little video which is really about what is not a model for mission and evangelism in the 21st century. And then as we look at Antioch, we'll see what is a model. So just enjoy, brothers and sisters, the pizza, the pizza evangelist. How to do it, is it? It's not exactly the most loving, caring way to approach people. It's not exactly modeling what we see in the life of Jesus. But I believe in the church in Antioch, we do see something that is modeled on the life of Jesus. Turn with me to the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 11, please. Beginning at verse 19. Acts of the Apostles, chapter 11 beginning at verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived, in the church today, we probably would have set up a committee instead, wouldn't we? But the church in Jerusalem decided rather than a committee and a subcommittee and a subcommittee of the subcommittee, they would actually send a living person, a wonderful man of God, whom we'll refer to later and tomorrow. So he was sent to really find out what was going on. Look at what happened when he arrived. Verse 23. When Barnabas arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad. And he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord 
with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Let's just pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that your word is the word of truth and the word of life. And we pray that the same Holy Spirit who inspired these words to be written will help us understand them this morning. And not just understand them, but apply them to our own hearts and lives. So that we may not be just hearers of your word, but doers. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Um, Antioch is a fascinating church and one of the things that I have learned about the church in Antioch is that it was a church of firsts and we'll unpack this a little bit I'll give you a, a very clear example of this but like here is the first time really that the Greek Nikos will be delighted about this the Greeks were invaded in the sharing of the good news in Antioch. And wasn't last night fantastic, by the way, for those who were here? Wasn't it so inspiring to listen to Shadrach and Nikos sharing about Uganda and Greece? And thank you to both of our brothers for what they shared last night. It was absolutely wonderful. They would have enthused a corpse, you know, last night. They really would. It was just fantastic. So thank you so much. And I have no doubt, as we hear stories of faith and courage tonight, will be equally inspired. But in this church in Antioch, there were so many firsts. Here is a real first in the New Testament of a significant impact being made amongst the Greeks, not just the Jews. In this church in Antioch, for the first time, we see a friendly fellowship, a fellowship marked by care and love and radical commitment, a witnessing church, a missionary church, And so I would call this really a church of firsts. Note, for example, verse 26 in that passage we've just read. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. I wonder, do you realize that the name Christian was originally a nickname? It was a nickname given to the disciples of Jesus and those who were followers of the way in Antioch. Now, if you were here on Sunday night, Stephen asked me about the origin of the nickname that I have carried around with me for many, many years, which is the nickname Fanta. Indeed, when I became a bishop, one of my friends said to me, do we now have to call you Right Reverend Fanta in God? And uh, I said, well, no, you don't. But anyway, he was intrigued to explore this kind of possibility. Um, And one of the things I have learned about nicknames over the years is that very, very often nicknames actually identify a characteristic of the person who's been given this nickname. 
It is no longer politically correct, for example, to call people skinny or fatty. But it was when I was 10 and 11 years old, because when I was 9 and 10 years old, my nickname was Fatty. Fatty Clark, I was known as in Hollywood, where I grew up. And it was an accurate description of my size and shape at that particular time. I was deep and wide. I really was. I had it everywhere. As I heard somebody say recently, my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and this is the dome. As they patted this enormous stomach that they had. And I knew people who were called skinny and it was because they were thin. I've heard some men referred to as grumpy. Do you know why? I remember a lady being asked, do you wake up grumpy in the morning? She said, no, I waken him up every morning. And often nicknames will tell you something about the person. Now, why were these disciples and followers of Christ, the carpenter from Nazareth, why were they given this nickname? Christian. Well, let's say it again. Christian. Any idea why they might have got that name? Surely it's obvious. They shared the good news of Jesus Christ. They sang hymns to Christ. They prayed in the name of Christ. They healed in the name of Christ. They lived for Christ. They pr- Everything they did was Christ-centered. Now, there were times when they got it wrong, but their overriding ambition and focus and aspiration was to live for Christ. So if all these people in Antioch, the citizens of Antioch, heard about this community and kept meeting these people who were talking about Christ and living for Christ and singing about Christ, surely it's obvious how they got the nickname Christians. I wonder about where you and I live. If we were simply disciples of Jesus, would we earn the nickname Christians? Because our lives are so Christ-shaped and Christ-focused, and Christ-motivated, and Christ-like. You know that story, and indeed somebody sent me a superb little PowerPoint presentation of it recently, of this group of Christians worshipping in a country where the church is persecuted, and a couple of armed men broke into the meeting and said, would all the real Christians stand up and everybody else run out? And most ran out. And when they had run out, the armed men put down their guns and took their uniform off and said, now the real Christians are here, let's worship, let's worship together. Would you have run out? Or would we have stayed? These disciples in Antioch, I think, are a model for us of people consumed with Christ. And I wonder in the church in the 21st century and some parts of the world, have we slipped into religious activity and humanitarian efforts? And somewhere along the line, we've lost Christ. More about that in a few moments. I think one of the secrets of this church in Antioch as to why 
the name Christian was first given, or Christian. And as to why, as we read in verses 21 and in 24, did you note, that a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. A great number of people were brought to the Lord. It was the quality of the life of these people. There was a fellowship that was real and hot and vibrant in that community of faith that impacted that great city of Antioch. Turn to Acts 13, because here I think, particularly in the first verse, is the kind of verse that often some of us fall asleep. We fall asleep when we read something like this. We think that is so uninteresting and so dull. When actually, if we understood it, we would discover there is an incredibly exciting dynamic at work here and a wonderful truth that we need to get hold of. Look at how Acts 13 begins. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, or Cyrene, Menen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now, what's that list of names all about? Well, I think as we look at the names of those people in the church in Antioch, we learn a whale of a lot. We discover how real and how deep the fellowship must have been in that community of faith. Just bear with me for a moment. Barnabas, who was Barnabas? Where did he come from? Well, he was what we would call in the 21st century a property dealer. He was a land bank man. He was a property man. He was a landowner from Cyrus, a Jew, remember, a Levite. But he had money and he had land. And then, who's next on the list? Simeon. Sometimes are called Niger. What do we know about Simeon? Well, Simeon had a nickname, so I feel I'm in good company, both with him and with these disciples at Antioch having a nickname. But his nickname was Swarthy, Niger, presumably of dark complexion, presumably black-skinned in contrast to Barnabas and some of the others in the church in Antioch. And then who's next on the list? Lucius of Cyrene. Well, where's Cyrene? It's in North Africa. Probably black too. Certainly deeply tanned. And then Manan. Who was he? Well, Luke in the Acts gives us a little bit of information for, about him. He had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch. This guy had not been brought up in the slums, folks. This guy had, had an aristocratic background. Wealth. Comfortable lifestyle was what he'd been accustomed to. One of the intimates of Herod's family. One of the most influential, powerful, wealthiest groups. A kind of Kennedy dynasty. He knew nothing about dole cues, or the Baru, as we would call it. And then the final name we read there, and Saul. Well, who was Saul? Well, we know who Saul was. He was a fiery intellectual from Tarsus, 
I think I would rather have debated with Saul as a team together rather than debated against Saul. Do you not feel like that? What a mind he had. Later, the Apostle Paul. What an intellect he had. What a depth of knowledge he had. What a quick, sharp mind he had. And here are just some of the people who are in this church in Antioch. What a lot. What a mixture. Black and white. Jew and Gentile. Aristocrat and Pharisee. Remember, that's what Paul had been or Saul. And yet, here they are now, by the grace of God, one in Christ, in a real living fellowship. Isn't it miraculous and amazing how God draws together people from entirely different backgrounds, different national backgrounds, social backgrounds, religious backgrounds, and he molds us together into a united whole, a community of faith, where faith, love, and unity are are marks of our lives together. We had the privilege, as I mentioned a few moments ago, of serving in Coleraine for 15 years. And occasionally I would have looked at that congregation and I would have seen a university professor and somebody who couldn't read a word. The literate and the illiterate and everything in between. I'd have seen different nationalities there. People from different social backgrounds. There were people who lived in one part of Coleraine who in 45, 50 years had never been in some other parts of the town because it was a different social grouping of people. God had brought us together. And sometimes I would say, you know, only God could bring a group like us together. Only God could do it. You think of the fellowship of the church that you're a part of. Only God could bring together a group like that. You know, sometimes the authorized version isn't far from the truth when it describes us as the Lord's peculiar people. But in a different sense to what it means. Isn't it extraordinary? And here we are in a fellowship. People from the north people from the south. Look at this gathering here. Irish-English. I mean, for the English and the Irish to get on together is a miracle. Isn't it? I mean, sometimes when I go to England, I say I'm part of the Celtic mission to the Anglo-Saxons. And I will say, do you know why Irish jokes are so simple? They say no, so that the English can understand them. And historically and politically and culturally, there's been chasms between the Irish and the English. And yet, some of my best friends are English brothers and sisters in Christ. People from the Republic of Ireland, brothers and sisters in Christ, even though I grew up in Unionist Hollywood. You see, the Lord breaks down the barriers and he brings together in a living, real fellowship People of totally contrasting backgrounds with totally contrasting personalities, totally contrasting occupations, and he molds us together into a living, loving fellowship that can impact the community. I remember being at a men's dinner, speaking at it in a church one night in Belfast. And these two men ended up sitting beside each other, and you know, you get that feeling, I've seen you before. 
but you can't remember where it was. And these two men at that kind of thing, we've met each other before, they couldn't make out where it was. And then when one man discovered the other man was a policeman, he remembered immediately when they'd met. He'd got a parking ticket from him, or a, a, a speeding fine. That's where they'd met. But here they were together in the church Isn't it great law and grace mixing together like that anyway? But isn't this the way God has made us to be? Go back to the book of Genesis. It is not good that man should be alone. That's not just the text that a bachelor has over his bed in his bedroom at night. It is not good that a man should be alone as he looks and searches the world for his wife. It's actually a far wider application. We were not made to be alone. You and I were made for relationship. Relationship with a God into whom we enter, with whom we have a relationship of love, and relationship with others whom we love and serve and care for. We were made to be together. It is not God's will that we are lonely and alone. Either in ordinary life or in our Christian life, God has made us for friendship and fellowship. Why were we created in the first place? What's the Holy Trinity all about? Relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Community. And that intimate community of unity and love is to be reflected in the fellowship of the church and it was in Antioch. Someone said the real menace in the 20th century world was not the hydrogen bomb but the fact of proximity without community. Isn't it amazing how you can be in a crowd and be one of the loneliest people in the world More and more, I'm discovering people who are desperately, desperately lonely in our world. And some of them are in our churches, folks. Even a church can be the loneliest group of people in the world. Where somebody sits and he or she sees other people talking and interacting, nobody speaks to them. They feel marginalized. Isolated. Do the fellowships, the churches where we worship and serve, do we have a concern for single people, widows, orphans? Do we have a concern for people whose marriage is in difficulty? You know, some people foolishly think that if you're married, you could never be lonely. Nonsense. We're made for community. And if the church of Jesus Christ is not about community, what is it about? Read the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter. Surely it's about the creation of a new community, what Stotty calls in his commentary in Ephesians, God's new society. One of my favorite authors is Chuck Swindle. I love his books. I think they're great for preachers, actually. But they're good for everybody. And in one of his books, Chuck Swindle, who'd been in the American Marines, tells the story of a man who'd been in the Marines with him 
And after Swindle had left the Marines, he heard this man had been converted and he could hardly believe it because of the kind of life that that guy had lived. And I quote, Swindle says, he was one of those guys you'd never picture as being interested in spiritual things. He cursed loudly, he drank heavily, he fought hard, he chased women, he loved weapons, he hated the chapel service. But he was a great Marine, said Swindle. And when Swindle finally met him after his conversion, and his friend told him about how he'd come to know Christ, with a look of sadness, he put his arm around Chuck Swindle's shoulder and he bared his soul to him. And this is what he said. Just listen to these words. What a challenge they are to us. He said, Chuck, the only thing I miss is that old fellowship all the guys in our outfit used to have down at the slop chute. And you're wondering what the slop chute is. Well, it was, it's the, apparently the Greek for tavern on the base where they met to have a few drinks together. And he said to Swindle, he said, man, we'd sit around, we'd laugh, we'd tell the stories, we'd drink a few beers, we'd really let our hair down. It was great. I just haven't found anything to take the place of that great time we used to enjoy. I ain't got nobody to admit my faults to, to have them put their arm around me and tell me I'm still okay. And Chuck Swindle said, those words hurt me. Because they're true. You see, that Marine should have found a far deeper depth and quality of fellowship in the church. But he didn't. In John Stott's book, One People, one of his first books, and a wonderful book, he, he develops this same theme. And he talks about the neighborhood bar or the local pub that often functions like a counterfeit church. You see, many of us think people go to the local pub for alcohol. Can I tell you most don't? I'll tell you why they go there. They go for friendship. They go for community. They're not lonely there. They're part of a group, a gang, where they can bear their souls to one another. They help each other when they're in need. They listen to each other. You ever been in church and somebody says to you, how are you? And you begin to answer honestly. And you see they're looking all around the place. Not actually one bit interested in hearing the answer to the question, how are you? Just feel they should ask it. That's not Christian caring. That's not real fellowship. That's not modeling Jesus. I quote, the neighborhood bar is possibly the best counterfeit there is for the fellowship Christ wants to give his church. The neighborhood bar is an imitation, dispensing liquor instead of grace, escape rather than reality. But it is a permissive, accepting, and inclusive fellowship. It is unshockable. It is democratic. You can tell people secrets, and they usually don't tell others or even want to. The bar flourishes not because most people are alcoholics, but because God has put into the human heart the desire to know and be known, to love and be loved. And so many seek a counterfeit at the price of a few beers.
What happens in the church when somebody comes in and says, I'm beaten? My prayer life isn't going too well. I'm really struggling in the faith at the moment. Listen, can you help me? I really have some serious doubts. Sometimes we don't really know what to do. And yet we're called to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Fellowship, the Greek word is koinonia. It's about a partnership. It's about quality, quality life. It's about depth. It's about richness. And can I tell you this? When there is real fellowship like that, in the community of the church and in a community of faith, that community is a missional community. And people want to join it. Because they will discover integrity there and honesty there and acceptance there and a spirit of care there that they haven't discovered anywhere else. And the church in Antioch had discovered the secret of that kind of Christian fellowship. Christ-centered relationships. Christian relationships. Their fellowship was a deep reality transcending barriers of race and color and background and education and it spoke volumes. Remember what Jesus said, How is the world to know that we are Christians because we can quote the Westminster Catechism, the 39 articles, whatever, our confession? Nothing like that. The world will know we are his disciples by our love for one another. And that's what the citizens of Antioch saw in the Christians of Antioch. The love of Jesus in their lives and being expressed through their lives. And my, what an impact it made. Just recently, I was talking to a pastor in Dublin. And he was telling me that a few months ago, there was a Chinese lady baptized in their church. She'd just been converted a few weeks or months before that. And I said, tell me, how did she come to faith? Well, he said, this might surprise you. He said, it wasn't the preaching. It wasn't the worship in the church. He said, do you know what she said to us? She'd never been in a church before until she went to Dublin. She was from mainland China. She said what impressed her most was the way the Christians cared for each other. She'd never seen anything like that before. But that's what Jesus said would happen. They will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Isn't that what we heard last night from Nikos? People being impacted by seeing Christ-like love and care in action, beginning to ask questions. What's this all about? We haven't seen anything like this before. And they come to know the Christ who is the source of that love and the source of that life. And that was what was happening in Antioch. Praise God. A missional community. The body of Christ in action. Someone has written, and I quote, God will not use our churches in evangelism if they are rent with division, backbiting, resentment, and cold relationships between members. The fellowship in a church has got to be hotter than anywhere else in town. 
I was listening to a well-known Christian leader of a large church in Belfast, listening to him recently, and he was describing of how when he was a teenager, he encouraged some of the older members of his church to go out door to door and invite people to come along because they couldn't understand why nobody would ever come to the Sunday night gospel meetings. And when he called at one door to invite this man to come along, he said, oh, you're from the boxing club, aren't you? He said, what? He said, yeah, you're from the BBC. He thought, what is this all about? And then he discovered that about 10 or 14 years before, there'd been fisticuffs in that church. And the fight had spilled out onto the streets. And the community called the local church the local boxing club. May God forgive us, folks. We've got it so wrong. What's got into us? Someone said to me at one of our church house parties years ago, he said, you know, the church is the only group of people on earth where you can be savaged by sheep. May God forgive us. What a contrast, Antioch. And we'll see this tomorrow. They cared for the new believers. They cared for people who had never heard of Jesus. They cared for needy people who were hungry and starving. They cared for each other because they loved God and cared for Christ and the glory and honor of his name. And so it impacted their lives and the way they related to each other. When we served in a church in the south side of Dublin... I noticed a man started coming along to the church because um, his elderly mother was a member and she loved to be there every Sunday and she'd got to the age where she couldn't drive herself and so he started to drive her. He was someone who had helped my wife enormously when my wife was a young teenage Christian in Cork. But over the years he had literally burnt out for God and was exhausted and kind of pulled back from the church, exhausted, physically, emotionally. And there are many people like that, folks. And he started coming to the church where we were serving Crinken, and, and I'd start to meet him for lunch or for a cup of coffee, and he said something to me I've never forgotten. He was a successful businessman who worked in the docks of Dublin with one of the big oil companies. He said to me, he said, Fanta, I get a battering at work every week, Monday to Friday. He said, I'm working with tough dockers. You wouldn't believe some of the things that I hear that are said to me. He said, I can't come to a church where I'm going to be battered every Sunday. He said, I need to come to a church where I'm going to be encouraged to go back again to work on Monday morning. I don't know a lot about farming, let me tell you this. But I do know that sheep need to be fed every day and shorn once a year. In some of our churches, we do the opposite. We shear the sheep and we fleece them at least once a week. And if they get fed once a year, well, that's a bonus. May God forgive us. The church in Antioch was a well-taught church, and we'll see this tomorrow. Barnabas was there, the son of encouragement. And what so many of God's people need today and long for is encouragement. Not those who have such a ministry of discouragement. Oh dear, their people bring joy when they come into the room and their people bring joy when they leave the room. 
And you know people like that, and so do I. But in the church in Antioch, there were more who brought the joy when they came into the room and the love of Christ. Remember the church in Ephesus, Revelation chapter 2. What had happened to that church? It was wonderful in many, many ways. But what did the risen Christ have to say to them? You've lost your first love. And he called them to do three things. To remember, to return, and to repent. And they did. But only for a while. And the prophecy of Jesus has come true in Ephesus. That if you don't remember, return, and repent, I will take the light lampstand from you. And some years ago, I had the privilege of being in Ephesus. There's no church there. It's ruins. And the light that used to burn brightly has gone. And as far as I know, the community is almost entirely Muslim. And when that love for God and love for Christ goes in the church, there's a light that goes out. Please just watch this. Just in case you missed that, I want you to watch it once more. I'm not ashamed to tell you that when I first saw that, I cried. I thought, Jesus, that's the way the church is meant to be. A little child shall lead us. There's that little girl thinking, what can I do to show my brother that I care? How can I show him that I love him? She decides to cut off her beautiful hair. And so when her little brother arrives home, or her big brother, from his cancer treatment, she gives him her hair. That was the church in Antioch, folks. They cared. 
They were willing to give. They were willing to serve. Folks, that's Jesus. He didn't give his hair, he gave his life on the cross. Why? Because he cares for you, for me. And I have to tell you this, and with this I finish. My father died when I was eight years old. And my mother died in my late teens of cancer. I'm an only child. And I have to tell you this, and I say it to the glory of God. I, in my life, have never, ever known and experienced love like I have seen and experienced in the church of Jesus Christ. I could keep you here for hours telling you about the love and care and compassion of Christian people. But do you know what excites me even more? That we can go out from this convention and we can share that same love of Jesus Christ. We can live out that same gospel truth of Jesus Christ. And we can be missional communities where there's real fellowship, where there's genuine friendship, where there's authentic, Christ-shaped, Christ-based, Christ-inspired love. And we can go out and make a difference in this world that Jesus died for. We only make the difference when we walk in his sandals, when we're filled with his spirit, and we're willing to give and give and give again. For the little girl, it was the giving of hair. For the Son of God, it was the giving of his life. I wonder what the Lord is calling you and I to give so that others may know. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we cannot thank you enough for the privilege of being members of the body of Christ, for your awesome grace in adopting us into your family so that we are sons and daughters of the living God. Lord, forgive us for the times when we get it wrong. And help us in the strength and power of your Holy Spirit as we grow older to grow more like Jesus. And may the churches and fellowships we're a part of, Lord, be like that church in Antioch. And may we impact the communities, the towns, the cities, the villages where you have called us to be, to live, and to serve. In the strong and precious name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.